1: There has been a multi-decade campaign to get tough on animal crime or have zero tolerance for animal abuse or have a war on animal crime. You know, there's lots of different mantras. But if these mantras sound somewhat familiar to your audience, they should because they're all borrowed lines, borrowed ideas from the war on crime and the war on drugs. And so my book is sort of saying, look, there's lots of great people out here doing animal work. And... But they're borrowing from a tradition of ideas and a discourse that by and large has been a failure, right? And to the extent that we want to see success in advancing the status of animals in law, I'm deeply skeptical, and that's probably an understatement, deeply skeptical of the idea that an investment in more convictions, more policing, and more prosecutions is um, an effective vehicle to get there.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Animal Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies channel will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Justin Marceau. Justin is a professor of law, the Brooks Institute Faculty Research Scholar of Animal Law and Policy, and an affiliated faculty member with the Institute for Human-Animal Connections at the Graduate School of Social Work. Justin serves as the reporter for the Pattern Criminal Jury Instruction Committee of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, as an inaugural member of the Governor's Council for Animal Protection, formed by a proclamation of the Governor of Colorado, and he is a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. He is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Justice for Animals Award and the Colorado Criminal Defense Bars Gideon Award. He's a member of the American Law Institute, and he was a visiting professor at Harvard Law School for the spring 2020 semester. He has recently represented indigent persons, persons sentenced to death, and a wide range of public interest nonprofits. He also frequently authors or contributes to amicus briefs, most often on issues relating to animal law or habeas corpus. He received a JD from Harvard Law School and a BA from Boston College. His first book, and the book under discussion today, is 2019's Beyond Cages, Animal Law and Criminal Punishment, published by Cambridge University Press. For all the diversity of views within the animal protection movement, there's a surprising consensus about the need for more severe criminal justice interventions against animal abusers. More prosecutions and longer sentences, it is argued, will advance the status of animals in law and society. Breaking from this mold, Justin demonstrates that a focus on carceral animal law puts the animal rights movement at odds with other social justice movements and may be bad for humans and animals alike. Animal protection efforts need to move beyond cages and towards systemic solutions if the movement hopes to be true to its own defining ethos of increased empathy and resistance to social oppression. Providing new insights into how the lessons of criminal justice reform should be imported into the animal abuse context. Beyond Cages is a valuable contribution to the literature on animal welfare and animal rights law. Welcome, Justin, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here and join you. So your book is very, very good and very provocative or maybe perceived as provocative to some people. I (laughs) definitely think that every animal protection organization and Everyone concerned with reducing violence against animals should definitely read it and engage deeply with the arguments you are making. So as a way to begin, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, your your background, training, and the focus of your work. Sure. Yeah. Appreciate it. And thanks for
1: the kind words about the book. I really appreciate that. So I'm a law professor and a lawyer, and I specialize in Civil rights litigation, including free speech work, um, animal law, and criminal law. And before becoming an academic, I worked on a variety of fields. But I worked on a, a number of death penalty cases on the on the defense side, on the habeas corpus, and trying to prevent executions. And uh, in some ways, that motivated the book because it always struck me how lawyers that were working on the death penalty didn't have any leftover sympathy or. I don't know empathy for animals, and when I worked in the animal law field, then I saw that at least at that time, uh, very few of the animal lawyers cared at all about human incarceration or the criminal system. And you know, it just sort of struck me that there is more in common between these worldviews than than these folks are often acknowledging, and that if we really cared about how or why humans were suffering, or how or why animals were suffering, we might come to understand that there is some. Connections between these two things that are often ignored.
0: Yeah, it's it's not intuitively obvious that there should be a certain uh, a max in human empathy, but that is something that we're people in this field are working on, yeah. trying to build empathy towards animals, towards people, and ideally towards both, which is one of the main things that your book is about. Right. So the main project of your book is to examine the relationship between the animal protection movement and the criminal justice system. And essentially, you argue that the animal protection movement's pursuit of more and tougher incarceration sentences is mistaken and potentially detrimental to the cause of animal protection. So could you begin by just giving us a a, a 10,000 foot overview of what your main thesis is? And then we'll drill down from there. Yes, of course.
1: I mean, yeah, one level, you know, um, a pretty glib take is this, right? Why would we cage humans to teach people that caging or abusing animals is wrong? And, you know, the basic point is not so much more complicated than that, but it's born out of a sincere desire to, to question and examine the foundational assumptions of a movement. Um, animal protection that I think is really important to to modern civilization. There has been a multi-decade campaign to get tough on animal crime or have zero tolerance for animal abuse or have a war on animal crime. You know, there's lots of different mantras. But if these mantras sound somewhat familiar to your audience, they should because they're all borrowed lines, borrowed ideas from the war on crime and the war on drugs. And so my book is sort of saying, look, there's lots of great people out here doing animal work, and but they're borrowing from a tradition of ideas and a discourse that by and large has been a failure, right? And to the extent that we want to see success in advancing the status of animals in law... I'm deeply skeptical and that's probably an understatement. I'm deeply skeptical of the idea that an investment in more convictions, more policing and more prosecutions is um, an effective vehicle to get there.
0: Yeah. Just, just anecdotally, I would say that a lot of the ideas and a lot of the arguments covered in your book are not very familiar <laughs> to people working in the animal protection space. And On the one hand, I think you could read that as saying they're not not bad people. They're not like wishing to do harm. In fact, they're trying to do good. But the arguments that you make to me are very persuasive. And it goes beyond just why cage X if you're trying not to cage Y. That is an obvious way to think about it. and, And potentially that's all that you need. But it goes into arguments of the best way to protect animals may be Mm-hmm. to end this so-called war that we're engaged in. So mm-hmm. it it is, uh, once again, it, it's it's a powerful book and um, a bit of a revelation, I think, to people that aren't so deeply familiar with these these lines of thought that they really should be.
1: I appreciate so, it. Well, I was going to just say, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that in many occasions I would, even while I was writing the book, I would be in a pet store, you know, buying cat food or something, and the clerk, you know, they, in this day and age, everything comes up, you know, your email address and things. And so the clerk would see that I was affiliated with an academic institution. then she'd ask what I teach. And I'd say, oh, I'm teaching animal law. And she said, oh, animal law, that's great. She's like, you know, um, you know, do you help prosecute people? Like, there was a sort of the connection was so substantial among people that I would meet when I would often say, oh, I do animal law work. They would assume that meant I helped incarcerate people. It's, it's very salient in the public imagination.
0: Yeah, and I think it's kind of famously it's um, one of the the things that engages people the most, and you and you cover that in your book. I think right. that uh, it almost potentially could become an addiction for organizations because that's the thing right. that their supporters are the most jazzed about. Right, um, and so this your project and the project of of course other people is is to talk to the. To the animal protection organizations but also to begin to get these lines of thought out to the broader public and that's a big it's a big task but an important one thank you so could you give us just a brief overview of the the criminal justice system in the united states for those who aren't familiar with the details yeah the scale of it but just as importantly the the nature of its systemic racism and i'm in just a minute i'm going to ask you about the impact on individuals but let's not go there yet. So just sure. just the big picture criminal justice system.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, this is uh, it's it's a it's a great question. I mean, this is I, I you know an introduction to criminal law and law school. I spent – Almost two weeks on this, but I will—I'll give sort of a some broad brush, and then you can ask me follow-ups if there's there's things you think that I'm leaving out for your listeners. But you know, many of you have probably heard that the U.S. Um, is one of the world leaders in incarceration. You might not know exactly what that means, but the U.S. is uh, has around five percent of the world's population, but we incarcerate around twenty-five percent of the world's prisoners. And you may have heard that fact before, but what you may not know is that this was not always true. It was not an inevitable truth. I was born in 1977, and at that time, the U.S. was really not more punitive than Europe, and it was much less punitive than places like Russia. Uh, But somehow, during the course of my life, this has all changed radically. So whereas in the 1970s, we incarcerated about uh, 150 persons per 100,000, today in the U.S., that number is close and hovers right around 700. So 700 people per 100,000. And so what that tells you from the 1970s until now, we have had a quintuple and we've increased by about 500% our rate of incarceration. So countries in Europe tend to be, I think there's still no country in Western Europe that has breached the 200 club, that is 200 persons per 100,000. And like I said, the US were at 700. Pretty striking. And, you know, so in it, it, to, to put that in even more stark, stark terms, just to be clear, you know, if the US wanted to become average, um, you know, among the average nations of incarceration, we usually don't, you know, strive for, that's not what makes America great, Right? we don't strive for uh, mediocrity. But if we wanted to be mediocre or average, estimates are we would need to release somewhere between 1.5 and 1.8 million persons from incarceration. It's, it's completely unfathomable. It's ridiculous to imagine, actually. And of course, as you mentioned, right, the incarceration system in this country, has just massive distributive harms. African-Americans are incarcerated at a rate of about six times that of white persons. Persons who identify as Latina or Latino are incarcerated at rates of about 2.5 times the rate of uh, white persons. We could say lots more about that. You know, population data studies are always... Subject to, to questions, but persons who identify as black or brown make up about 30% of our population in this country, and they're about 60% of the incarcerated population. So it's really not, you know, in 2020, 2021, we're really not in a state where we say, oh, yeah, the criminal system is working. It doesn't have distributional harms. There's no racially inflected problems. You know, those who study the system know there are problems, and the question is, well, should we care? And how much should we care? And what should we do to change it?
0: So one of the points that you make in your book is that there are some issues with the criminal justice system, and it's not a natural ally for social justice movements. And yet it is the the BFF. It is the best friend of animal protection groups at this moment. Mm -hmm. So could you talk to us just briefly about the ways in which animal protection groups are really going out of their way to ally as closely as possible with the criminal justice system. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really is
1: everything. I mean, if if you were to sort of go to the web pages of any major national organization, what you would see is, you know, an image of probably an abused or neglected, you know, companion animal, it is trading in imagery and rhetoric um, first and foremost, But the legislative priorities of of major groups, at least the ones that are getting um, kind of press uh, output, they're putting out press releases and emails to the members, are things that would be familiar to anyone who's looked at or spent time around an animal protection group, you know, more felony laws, right? For for decades, the priority was to have more felonies, to have longer sentences accompanying those, right? We often see a, um, a rhetoric of updating the criminal law. And what we usually mean by updating is making it easier to convict, making the penalties that attach to the conviction more severe, uh, mandatory minimums right so that has been a goal this idea of no drop prosecutions that if the police see somebody or hear of somebody you know harming an animal or neglecting an animal that they, they don't have any discretion and prosecutors need to take the case um, offender registries right so if you've, you've heard about sex offender registries um, there's been a, a strong push for those in the in the um, animal context uh, even things like privately funded prosecutors which are which are sort of creative and novel to, Um, the animal movement, and then, you know, which is always common whenever you have a a sort of war on crime of any sort, what you see is in the rush to have the crime enforced, there is a a sort of willingness to reduce or sacrifice constitutional protection. So some of the big victories for animal groups that are celebrated our efforts to reduce the protection of the Fourth Amendment. You know, when can the police enter your home without a warrant and these sort of things? Very common, you know, in the war on drugs as well. All these things, right, were, were kind of touchstones of things like the war on drugs. And, and now they have been, uh, uncritically adopted by the the animal protection movement. And that's sort of what I challenge. But it's it really is everything, right? You say, well, I've heard about this, right? I mean, all you need to do is look at the bumper stickers, right? It's, it's if you were to have a bumper sticker that said, you know, reduce meat or meatless Monday, that would be still really radical. But if you have a bumper sticker that says abuse an animal, go to jail, um, you know, you might get honks and thumbs up, you know, and the organizations that put that out, you know, the newsletters would say abuse an animal, go to jail, and we mean it. Really tough on crime type rhetoric. And that's what we've been teaching the public for decades.
0: Could you now tell us a bit about the the impact of incarceration on the, the individual and the collateral impacts on the family and even the wider community of the incarcerated individual?
1: Yes, it's such an important point. I mean, uh, there is this pervasive myth. I mean, this this again is sort of focused on the human side, but uh, I'm happy to to turn over to the animal side in a moment, but there's this pervasive myth around criminal punishment. Um, There's lots of myths, but one of the myths is that getting a misdemeanor conviction is not particularly terrible or horrible. And related myth is that once you serve your time, you get back to doing what you were doing, right? So just go serve your time and then come back and join us in society. And these are myths because the reality is that for many persons, the process, the trial, losing your family, losing your job, you know, all of these things, when you're charged, being held pretrial, these are the real costs, right? There's a long, long list of consequences that you said, collateral consequences, that is, the sort of civil ramifications of criminal proceedings that are as damaging or more damaging when we're talking about uh, lower level offenses, right? So for many people, it'd be much more damaging to their life to be deported from this country than it would be to have a misdemeanor violation. But it turns out that those come as a package deal quite often, right? To maybe lose uh, voting status, to lose your public housing, to lose your driver's license, to lose your licensure that allows you to be a contractor or some other job and not being able to go back to work. And, you know, I mean, these things have all happened in the realm of of animal prosecution. And you have people who are, you know, you have animal protection groups. Um, I shouldn't just say people. You have have animal protection groups using money from donors to file briefs saying that person should be deported from this country. So, you know, in one in, in, in sort of one sense. I quote the great political scientist Timothy Pasharat, who's written the book Every 12 Seconds, for saying, you know, when did the animal protection movement become an arm of ICE? When did they become an arm of immigration enforcement? Well, they did when they decided that it was proper and a good idea to advance the rights of animals through any form of kind of carceral or or criminal justice logic. And so deportation is one of those things, right? And this is a sort of TV imposed myth or lie, this idea that we all get justice if somebody gets prosecuted and convicted. It's just, it's not, that's never been the reality. and It's certainly not the reality for the persons in the system.
0: So if you don't mind, let's just, um, let's just hammer this point home a little bit so there's the the concept in your book of civil death, and you've covered a lot of this already. I don't mean to retread mm-hmm. ground, but just in 60 seconds or maybe two minutes, can you walk us through all of the all of the ramifications that lead to civil death? A lot of this you've already covered. I just I just want this really? to come across as clear as possible.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it really is. I mean, there is this concept of civil death, and it is meant. You know, it's it's this idea you know from an earlier time you would you would imagine that if you were getting convicted of a felony you would be executed if you were sort of convicted of a misdemeanor the idea was you were essentially civilly dead you would you know not have rights to own property you would lose what you had you could kind of be sent out um, and you know the leading scholars of, of the system in the modern times, and that includes people like Gabriel Jack Chin, have written that the modern system of collateral consequences functions very much in a way that looks like civil death. That is, you are convicted of a, of a panoply of crimes and then suddenly, holy cow, you can't go and vote. Oh my goodness, I tell the story in the book of a guy who went through the training to be um, an HVAC service person uh, and couldn't do so because of his conviction, right? So we are quite literally creating barriers. These aren't like, you know, psychological bear- barriers. These aren't uh, theoretical barriers. We're creating lit- literal legal barriers to regaining work, to being able to drive to work, um, you know, and 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 likewise. There, I mean, I think of civil death as expanding to the sort of things that we see in and around parole and probation supervision, right? You have these persons who move for example, I was just looking at a case where a woman moved out of her apartment um, that had a um, rat infestation and she moved out and she didn't file the right paperwork. Um, and the fact of doing that landed her back in prison, right? So just imagine a web of consequences where you're filling out forms, you're filling out papers, you're learning that you don't get to drive anymore, you're learning that uh, you know your public benefits have been decreased, um, you're, losing, you're at risk of losing child custody. Uh, I mean truly the sort of scenario that that many of us would say wow the sky is falling and yet if you look at the literature of the animal protection movement you'd say oh well, we're doing things that are non carceral sometimes we even encourage um, non um, you know non-custodial punishments right sometimes we say just give them a conviction well it is that conviction that might be the most debilitating thing in this person's life right it might lead to them being deported and the
0: like I hope that's responsive so one thing that's that's certainly worth stressing is that your book, and tell me if you disagree with this, but your book is, is not written from an exclusively human focus. I mean, the, there right. is the concern in your book is for protecting animals. And a big part of your argument is that these policies that we're pursuing are actually counterproductive to the goals that we're striving for. So to get started down that road, in in theory hypothetically I don't know if there's a person on the planet that would say this perhaps but in theory you could argue all of that is fine whatever it takes to protect animals right but but you argue in your book citing the literature from criminology law psychology and sociology that carceral quote unquote victories may not even keep animals safe so, you give the examples of prohibition and the war on drugs to show that these punishments may not even really have a deterrent effect. And beyond that, you cite studies showing that incarceration may actually increase a person's likelihood of, of reoffending when released. So could you talk to us about how the, the carceral approach may be not only ineffective, but possibly even increase violent or, or so-called criminal tendencies?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's it's really, this is the the essence of the book. And I, I do get a lot of criticism. I'm trying to put together some different literatures. I want people who care about animal law to care about criminal law and, and vice versa. And yeah, I mean, I get a lot of, of hate mail from uh, pro-animal people. You wondered if anybody thought this way, who say, look, uh, what you're saying is all really interesting, but it sounds like human rights. And what I do is animal rights. And so as an animal rights lawyer, I really don't give uh, a darn about what you're saying, right? Stop with the human stuff and come over and join us and do some animal stuff. And I have to say that's it has been the most uh, demoralizing aspect of, of uh, having published this book is that that is in some ways, uh, you know, it's it's maybe in, in 2020 changing, but th- that's been the most demoralizing part of this project. And in a, in a sense, there's there's just this line in their mind uh, of of the average animal advocate that says there's human issues and there's animal issues, and you know, caring about racism in the system, caring about problems with you know collateral consequences and, and registries and those things, they just uh, you know, they're they're fundamentally human issues, and all we're trying to do is help animals. And, you know, what I'm saying is that it's far, far from clear that prosecutions are producing less animal crime. You know, it's it's one of the things that's shocking to me about the entire criminal animal law project is that over all these decades of investing in more felonies and convictions and prosecutions, the groups have never invested in any research to suggest that this has reduced animal crime, right? All the data suggests that animal uh, suffering is going up. Animal crimes are up. But... We are taught, we are conditioned to believe um, in this sort of utopian ideal that as long as we have prosecutors who say, oh yes, I care about animal crime, oh yes, I will prosecute this, then at the end of the day, we're in good luck because animal crimes will go down, right? But there's nothing that says this, absolutely nothing. Um, So one of our foundational assumptions as as animal protection advocates has just been potentially um, a false or false narrative or a red herring, right? Which is, okay more crime, more prosecution, we will have less animal crime. And I could give you lots of examples. I do in the book go through a number of the, the leading criminology studies and social psychology on this. But even in the last 18 months, I mean, there, you know, with the, with the rise of some progressive prosecutors, um, these narratives are even more in question. Right? There's a study out of um, Suffolk County in Massachusetts that shows actually that when persons are not prosecuted, so not that they don't go to jail, when a prosecutor drops charges altogether against a person, those people, as compared to a control group, have less future contact with the criminal system. And I think they looked at that for about two years. So imagine that, right? Our American mindset is so punitive that we can't really imagine a world in which the absence of punishment means that a person will do better. But because of things like collateral consequences and the like, it turns out that that could be true. It could be, we've never tried this, that less punishment produces better outcomes. Uh, And so the the quantitative data on this is fascinating and it's starting to to really um, gel. But I could give you a a quick, you know, qualitative example, which is just within the last 18 months, a woman in Texas um, had taken a dog into her veterinarian and the dog, longtime companion, was was limping. And the vet said, oh my goodness, we have this, this problem. Um, she has, uh, you know, in her old age stopped grooming and the, underneath she has this terrible matting and it's causing injury and that's what's making her limp. And the, the vet prescribed uh, like a roughly $1,500 treatment plan. This poor woman couldn't afford it. And she brought the dog home Um, You know, a short time later, the dog wasn't doing better. And we're talking months here. We're talking days, uh, maybe week. And she surrendered the dog to the local animal shelter, which advertises on its website, you know, come one, come all, we'll take all animals, crying, upset, losing this companion because she couldn't afford it. Well, when she turned it over to this uh, animal protection organization, within uh, a short period of time, police officers were sent out to her house and she was charged with felony neglect for the for the matting. Um, She was held in jail for more than a month away from her kids, away from her family, losing her job. And then guess what? Um, ICE, Immigration uh, Customs and Enforcement, came and took her to an immigration detention facility. And all this happened, right, because she was trying to do the right thing by her dog. And, you know, animal people often say, well, you know, we've got to do this or people won't take it seriously. Um, I can tell you that the lawyer for this woman who is fighting her deportation Tell us the neighbors in that community now, right? You'd be making a mistake if you run to the you know, shelter or you run to the animal lawyers because they're not going to help you. They're going to end up getting you deported or get your neighbor deported. right? And this is the same thing that's happened with various kinds of uh, you know, sex crimes and the like. People want to be safe they don't necessarily want the person who has harmed them to be deported or locked up in a way, right? People, it's, it's, it's a complicated thing. So um, yeah, it's, it's far from clear, I guess, as in both in terms of qualitative data and quantitative data, that the animals are being helped by this focus on convictions or longer sentences. And, And in fact, the opposite seems to be true.
0: And could you just on a, on a top level sense could you kind of make the connection to to your last answer the ways that incarceration in negatively impacts individuals and their communities with the possibility that crime and violence against animals would increase so the the toughening of empathy that occurs within prison and the the economic impacts that happen to communities that see significant uh, rates of incarceration just just yeah. Just make that connection. How when significant number of peoples are put away for years, how does how could that result in more violence against animals?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, so there, there's a lot there. Right. It's 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 uh, there's a lot to unpack in a sense that um, I will say, I mean, this is a, a sort of caveat to what I had just said before. Right? I mean, if animal protection people, people interested in protecting animals did not have any limits to what they would seek in terms of incarceration. And, and frankly, and, and somewhat alarmingly, I think that's true of some people. You know, you could see an incapacitation benefit at some point, right? You could say, okay, uh, every time you neglect or harm an animal, we're going to lock you up for X decades, some period of decades. Um, it is possible to, you know, incapacitate a person such that they will never harm an animal. But usually we don't think we're going to be giving these people life sentences. mean, um, some people might like that um, or death sentences or the like. And so these people are going to come back out of prison
0: for the most. Part. And also I I apologize, but even, even in that circumstance, say we implemented the death penalty, right? Um, it, it ignores the fact that that offenders children and that offenders community will see negative consequences that could result in increased levels of anger and instability and all the things that could lead to increases in violence against animals so even in the scenario where we literally remove anyone that has ever injured an animal from the population forever even still there could we could see an increase in violence against animals
1: absolutely yeah no i mean there's there's no question that we we remove people from communities and we have these sort of there are certain pockets, particularly in the South, where you see rates of incarceration, particularly among persons of color, that are just off the charts. I don't have the numbers in front of me, um, but you know there are there are places where you know in some neighborhoods because crime is of course localized, but it's it's not even just that it's local. It is you know very specific. You get census tract by census tract, and um, you know in some of these areas where there are one in ten. Families have incarceration. I mean, the 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 rates of incarceration for the children are just astronomically high, and it's not the case that we you know lock someone up and then we purge the entire community of all violence or just you know socioeconomic disadvantage, and suddenly they will rise up and there will be the animals will be safer and the community will be safer. I mean, th- again, these, these are these are stories we tell ourselves when we don't live in these communities. But it's not true, right? It's 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 very hard to imagine. Um, that when you lock up this person suddenly, uh, either when they come out or within their family community, the, the, you know animals are going to be better off. Um, it just doesn't work
0: that way. So you argue that the the carceral focus of the animal protection movement distracts from more systemic analysis and solutions. And this this is kind of the flip side of of the point we just made, and that. We, we, we put people away, right. but during that time, we kind of, we harden them. There, there's no effort put in to help rehabilitate them. And so in theory, when they come out, they're, they're more likely to commit violence. And right. so the argument here is that animal abuse is caused by, by complex social phenomena that, that should be addressed systematically but the carceral approach ignores all of that completely and instead just focuses on punishing individuals. But if the problem is caused by complex social factors, we're not gonna make any progress towards eliminating violence if we completely ignore those factors. So could you just talk to us a little bit about this, about how our, our focus on the individual completely ignores the potentially the root cause of the violence?
1: yeah i mean it's it, I'm, I'm glad you you caught that in the book i i think this is and this is actually where some of my future research has has gone and where i'm focused i think this is a, a really important point for for people to understand which is that i mean there's two things going on here right we are looking for an individual to target and we say here ha we caught it we caught the animal abuser we caught the person who kicked the cat we caught the person who did this or that and therefore we are serving the interests of animals, but these sort of individualized cases without understanding the structural and systemic causes really don't do anything to help. And in fact, might, as we just talked about, further entrench a system in a cycle of violence towards animals. So that's one problem, right? Is it just sort of imagining a, a scapegoat? But in an essay that I just published in the Harvard Law Review, um, it's getting to the bigger point that you mentioned sort of distracting our attention and producing public complacency I published it and say this is what I call um, palliative animal law. You know this idea that we are sort of providing pain relief. So I, I say that, like other palliative treatments, the kind of law and order approach to animal law provides pain relief for all of us humans who are disturbed, we're, we're upset that the, the world is filled with animal violence, but it doesn't do anything to cure the underlying systemic violence or structural violence that is committed often. For commercial purposes, right? So it's a true palliative in the sense that it provides us pain relief. We feel good, right? I mean, we actually feel happy, many of us. We say like, oh, good, they caught that cat abuser. Um, and it, it provides that sort of pain relief. But it masks rather than curing the underlying sources of this violence. And it hides from the public focus the fact that most animal suffering is occurring not at the hands of some guy who's who happens to be you know out kicking cats or the like. I mean, not not, not to deny that there's terrible things that are happening, but th- this is not where most of the animal abuse occurs. Uh, and I think that's that's just a very important thing for people to to focus on is what what if if you were doing sort of counterintelligence, if you were doing you know disruptive operations, as the CIA calls it, for you know agricultural industry or the fur industry what would you like the animal protection movement to focus on i think you would like them to focus on exactly what they're focusing on right the cat kicker should get a felony law oh we should take the men, you know we should take the mental requirement down for the the statute from intentional to reckless but these are these are all things that are truly at the margin like the true margins and it does not ever say okay well what about the fact that it's okay to slam pigs heads on the floor to kill them if they happen to be undersized I mean, what about that what about the fact that we kill this many millions of animals for their fur we don't we, we, the focus is entirely shifted to these people who for the most part, right, aren't doing much of anything. And the public then is convinced that the problem is something like a crush video or the problem is Santeria religious slaughter, um, when in fact that's
0: not the problem. That's not what animals would think of as the problem anyway. Right. So, I mean, in their defense, many animal protection organizations these days are, of course, messaging in both directions. They're messaging against exactly. animal agriculture, eating meat, but they're also messaging for incarcerations. And I think the argument to animal protection organizations is that and this is, comes back to your palliative idea where people that consume meat on a regular basis, possibly hunt (laughs) all sorts of things Mm -hmm. can feel that they're animal rights people because they're, they want to punish the person that kicks a dog or a cat. Usually I would say usually domestic animals or, or, At the very least sort of trophy you know dolphins perhaps lions but so the perception is created that those people are animal protection people even though they may be going out to hunt they may be eating ordering a cheeseburger
1: yeah yeah i mean i think it's a it's a really important kind of response because what you're saying is look you know many of these groups are interested in systemic and structural violence and i think that's right right i mean to, to be absolutely clear I don't, you know, with very few exceptions, I don't think any group is primarily uh, occupied with with uh, criminal animal law. It's not the only show in town. And so I think what many of them would say is, you know, look, we can we can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? We can take on the criminal system and we can also, uh, you know, grab for the farm, farm stuff. And my point is a little bit different here, which is that it's not just that this is a separate track, but it is a track that is so appealing to the public and the political economy here is so interesting, right? It brings in so much money that it becomes a focus, right? A group that might even be only spending 20 or 30% of its resources on kind of carceral or criminal law, you know, focus, criminal focus of animal law probably has a really substantial donor base that's committed to this, and they feed that narrative and then bring in new young people who believe it. So one of the things that I have been working on is actually some survey research um, about persons who affiliate with animal protection groups, and the thing that's that I've found that I think is just shocking is that persons who associate with animal rights groups are no more likely than the general public to correctly identify the greatest threats to animal well-being. So those who are paying attention, who are following it, uh, you know, tend to, there is no statistical significance, but statistically significant difference in their understanding of suffering and what causes it in, in the largest numbers. And the general public, those who say, I'm definitely not interested in animals at all. So persons who are associating with animal rights, and this is one of the things that I've been finding, are just much, much more likely to think that the main answer to the the problem of animal suffering is more prosecutions and convictions. So we have actually we're, we're at risk of conditioning the people who want to join this movement, the people who are you know, of, of open mind to say, well, the, the big solution here is, is is a criminal one. And that, I think, is in some ways something that the movement has has denied or denied, right? While they spend millions of dollars on these tough-on-crime campaigns and they put out bumper stickers at the tables, they would like to say in response to my book, well, look, we're also fighting factory farms, so we're doing everything. We do it all. So, you know, A, I think that the criminal focus is, is having a harmful effect and that it's creating more animal crime. But B... Uh, I feel very confident that it is distracting their own members, right? These these things are co constitutive Like the people on the ground listen to the movement. Of course, their donations shape the movement, but they are listening to the movement and being shaped. And they're being taught to believe that dogfighting and crush videos and, you know, religious slaughter – are, are the biggest threats to animals. Um, and when you do survey data, that's, that's what the people who think of themselves as animal rights interested and follow the animal rights groups tell you. Right. So, so yeah, I guess in my, my view, you're absolutely right that uh, one shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of good. And if this is protecting some animals, okay, well that's interesting. And then we can go on to the, to the even better projects later, but I actually think this is, this is a harmful distraction. It's not just a, you know, a harmless sideshow. It's becoming the show.
0: Well, that is a, a, to me, that's a fairly extraordinary finding that most, or a a majority, or whatever, however you phrase it, of animal protection supporters think that the number one priority is justice for animals campaigns, as opposed to factory farming. Over fishing, those sorts of things. That's that's an extraordinary fact. Have you you have not published that yet? That's something you're working on. That's right. I'm I'm probably I'm I'm actually going to be submitting it uh, this this month.
1: I've it's it's a paper I've written up. Maybe we can talk about it uh, you know another time. But it, but but yeah, absolutely. I mean it's it, it is there's a there's a series of findings. Um, one of the one of the things that people are asked um, that I'm that I'm going to be writing up is a discussion. Just what do you think is the most important thing? that, um, you know, animal protection groups can do. And, you know, depending on their interest, the person's prior interest, they have all the demographics too, but their prior interest uh, and connection to an animal rights group. There is all sorts of, I mean, sometimes it's 50%, sometimes it's 200%. They are more likely to believe that the number one thing animal um, groups should be doing is ensuring vigorous prosecutions of things like crush videos i mean the questions are that specific sometimes so you know and the answers include everything you know like litigating for personhood fighting climate change um, going after factory farms. But the persons who, and, and interestingly, persons who are interested in animal rights, my findings are that they aren't more punitive in general. Right? They, they don't think that the criminal system is great in general. They don't, they, like, they don't come back as more punitive than the people who are answering. They're definitely not interested in animal rights. They're just more punitive when it comes to animal crimes. And they've come to believe that that is the central tenet of, of creating a world where animals are, are safer and better.
0: Well, I, I hope that you publish that paper as soon as possible. Because, it um, <laughs> that it really is. It's it's an incredible statistic and I I think I, I think some of these groups would, would be shocked and would not be that I don't think that is their objective because right, everyone all of them are very aware that the the scale of of farming and fishing is, is simply so Vast that it's it's impossible to fathom. I think trillions trillions of fish are killed every year. Um, it just it it cannot be processed. So um, I I think that is a, a a very relevant statistic that should be in in discussion. Um, so let's quickly touch on. I want to begin to to transition out of this discussion, but I, I would like to quickly touch on the link. So the link is the notion that people who commit violence against animals are are likely to commit violence against people. And the argument goes that by incarcerating people who commit violence against animals, we prevent violence against humans. But you argue that the link is faulty in at least two significant ways. First off, it's not really true that people who commit violence against animals are overwhelmingly likely to commit violence against people. And second, even if it was, incarceration, as we've just been discussing, is not necessarily the solution. Incarceration may cause an increase in the amount of violence against animals, not a decrease. So could you just talk to us quickly about the link? What, what are the concerns about the link and, and how, I mean, I, I, this is less of a question than a response, but the link is very often cited by animal protection groups. So this this central idea in the field, could you talk to us about it and what are some of the, the problems with it?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I could not write a book about the topic of criminal prosecutions and animals without talking about the link because it, it is absolutely ubiquitous, right? I mean, it, there is not a discussion about why we need criminal enforcement in this area with where you don't have a sheriff and the animal groups, and almost everyone's saying. This is to protect us, right? I was at a hearing, a legislative hearing, where pictures of the Twin Towers going down, right, on 9-11 were put up to support an animal cruelty enhancement. And you may think, well, how could that possibly be? Well, the, the, the legislature had taken the position that, uh, you know, if you want to reduce violence in society and you want to reduce terrorism, terrorism is a kind of violence, then it must be that you need to increase the penalties for animal cruelty, right? It's so linked in our mind.
0: Often... Often Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted yes. Bundy get get Absolutely. brought up Adolf exactly. Hitler.
1: Yeah, I mean you see. are right. You get the the the, the 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 famous serial killers who we know, um, you know, quite anecdotally have abused animals. Then we say, well. Therefore, a child who abuses an animal is going to become a Jeffrey Dahmer or a Ted Bundy. Um, And in this way, right, the rhetoric, again, is so powerful because animal abusers have become a sort of boogeyman or, you know, to use the parlance of the 1990s that many of your listeners have probably heard at this point, a super predator, right? This idea that there is someone who's just different, a ticking time bomb that's waiting to become a serial killer unless we lock them up. But as with, you know, terms like super predator, it was always more mythology than reality. And the truth is that animal crimes don't appear to be particularly good predictors of future violence against humans at all, right? Um, you know, the research is, is kind of uh, weak here, but more often than not, even using the methodologies of the people who've done it, people don't go on to harm humans after harming animals, right? They're, it, even if you accept the methodologies that are used, which are not longitudinal, which are just studying prison populations, um more people who have harmed humans have not harmed an animal about 2 to 2 out of 3 have not harmed an animal in the past so it's a very bad
0: predictor actually and isn't it isn't it i may be wrong about this but isn't it also true that like most people during their life children right. children are as i think is fairly well known children are not necessarily overflowing with empathy so many right. many many children <laughs> will harm animals and so if yes. we were to you know, imprison all of the children that harm animals, we would be imprisoning perhaps the majority of all children. Right. It's a, I mean, the, yeah, it, it's, it's
1: really a complicated question. I mean, there, there are the numbers. Yes. I mean, I think that everyone accepts that the number, uh, the, the quantities of animal abuse that happen in childhood and adolescence can be quite high. And in some populations, in some studies, they've suggested the young, um, at least among young males, it may even be considered normative behavior. I and mean, that's a problem that needs to be addressed. But yes, it's 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 prevalent, right? Um, and studies vary on, you know, whether it's majority or not quite a majority or 30%. But the number, the, the point is, the numbers are astonishingly high. And we're never going to get to a point where I hope where we're incarcerating 30% or 50% of our population, and not 30% or 50% of our population or anywhere near it are going to become violent serial killers or violent, abusive human beings. Um, so that's part of the problem, right? Is uh, and, and and persons in, in clinical psychology and you know, other fields have, have written about this. I mean, my, my contribution here is just to note, right, in, in part, we are we often say that, you know, that the link helps us see the wolf in the sheep's clothing, right? It looks like a normal person next door, but you don't know that they're hurting kittens, and that means they're going to, you know, turn into Jeffrey Dahmer. In fact, right, with many of these kids in particular, we're probably pathologizing them and, and sort of putting the... Um, the sheep in a wolf's clothing, right? We're, we're sort of saying, oh my gosh, you've got a son that's going to turn out to be Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, it's just not true, right? It's, it's overwhelmingly not true. And as you note, right, even if it was true, even if it was true, incarcerating a person who lacks empathy, which is basically what all of the people have said is, is, is the foundation of link, incarcerating that person and then expecting them to come out a cat lover is absurd right? Somebody who hurts a cat when they're 16, lock them up for 18 months, and let them come out and say, now, now, we're, now society is safe. I mean, that, that, that there, is, there is zero evidence that that happened, that they become animal lovers. So I guess the point is that the talk about the link is all a bit misleading. And the way that I ask people to think about it is to imagine links plural, right? Um, for example, income is highly linked to animal abuse or neglect. The same survey that I was just talking about with uh, a moment ago. Um, One of the things that I find and then I'm going to publish is that persons making under 100,000 are about four times more likely to know someone who has been accused of an animal crime. So there may be links, but it's things like income. Also, socioeconomic disadvantage or joblessness is highly linked, right? Uh, I show that as well. So to imagine that you solve crime downstream just by punishing more harshly, Animal abuse is 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 pretty fanciful thinking. There's there's lots of things going on here. Income, socioeconomic disadvantage, race, class, all of these intersections that are linked, that are there are links plural. There is not one link. There's no magic silver bullet.
0: Right. If if you hadn't brought up the links plural, I, I was going to bring it up. The idea that if we're if our concern is to identify the potential causes of violence against animals, based on the data, the data is pointing us to income inequality, poverty, high incarceration levels. Right. Exactly. That's Um, exactly So, okay, wrapping up, can I ask you to, and this is a tough one, so just go with it, but just kind of present a vision for the future. I think a point that you make that I'm not sure if we've explicitly made now is what you're not recommending that the criminal justice be abolished or that there be no zero punishment whatsoever for people that injure animals. So what, what would it look like? You're not advocating for total decriminalization, but you do want to move beyond a a myopic focus on cages towards more systematic solutions. So can you just, yeah, just talk to us a little bit about that. I
1: mean, it is it is a really hard question, as you acknowledge. I mean, that's why I'm continuing to sort of do research on this and think about what are the, what are viable alternatives. And what I'll say, you know, um, which in some ways is unsatisfying, is in all different fields, there, you know, social, social scientists have documented that when we're entrenched in a certain culture or a certain set of norms, it's difficult for us to imagine the world in any other way, right? We, we see the world through the lenses we are presented. And that is true of animals, right? Like for us, for much of the the world, we say, well, they're food, they're entertainment, they're all these things, and we can't imagine a different world. And the people doing animal protection work are often challenging that dominant norm. Um, and what I guess I'm asking them to do is simultaneously say, well, just as you can think outside of the the, the cultural norms that. that you know, predispose many of us to think of animals as ours to use. Um, you have to be able to think of a system beyond the the criminal punishment system as a as a social change driver, right? You have to you have to have that creativity too. And, you know, my my co-author and, and collaborator, Lori Gruen, who's at Wesleyan University and the uh, a philosopher there, you know, she often says, she says, I'm labeled utopian, I'm labeled naive because I call for prison abolitionist. She's a, she's an abolitionist. And she says, but the truth is, you know, um, it's utopian to imagine that more prosecutions are keeping us safer. And they are reducing the crime, right? That that's the real pipe dream. So what do we do? I mean, you know, I, first, as I said, lots is already being done. There are lots of great, as you've pointed out, uh, animal advocates out there litigating and bringing policy proposals that bring attention to the suffering of animals in ways that do not conflict with civil rights. They don't ask for the Fourth Amendment to be reduced or somebody to be deported. Um, you know, people are suing to impose fair labeling standards on food products. They're suing to protect wildlife, to challenge the environmental damages of CAFOs, um, you know, bringing down ag-gag laws or anti-transparency measures. So there's lots that can be done and some of it is already being done. In the realm of abuse itself, I mean, you know, I am, I'm, I'm embarking on a research project to imagine what it would look like if we piloted sort of truly restorative or community-based justice approaches to animal Um, neglect and abuse, right? Uh, Maybe big thinkers and funders in the criminal justice realm will see this as a major opportunity, right? I mean, I think of animal law as a beautiful field because it allows us to think about law more generally through a species that we think of as less than us. And in this realm, what I'm planning to do is say, look, nobody wants to do big studies on violent crime and innovative studies. Every, all these studies, you know, are usually about nonviolent crime, even with progressive prosecutors. Um, and we say, okay, yeah, we could do this and this. We could charge less. We could dismiss, you know, give more probation. But in most of us accept, at least we care about animals, that animal crime is a form of violent crime, fine. And so could we do some innovative you know, research and pilots where we say taking violent crime, could we actually try things where we're reducing charges and providing opportunities that then change the way we think about the whole system in general, the criminal system, right? I mean, it's an opportunity for us to learn from animal law because of speciesism, because people think that animal crime is less serious, and say, teach the world something about how we might respond to violent crime, because the truth is, we just haven't tried, right? So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have a, a, a pat answer, but I think that there's going to be investments in some of these programs and pilots that we're going to learn things that we haven't known for decades. I'll also just say, sort of droning on here, but, you know, it's possible that we could have subsidies instead of citations, right? Money does a lot. And, uh, you know, the truth is that instead of putting someone in jail for neglect, if we helped her pay the vet bill or the food bill or the groomer bill, um, we would be making the animal community look a lot different. They would be a voice of support, a voice that a a number you would call instead of a group that you would fear. They're coming to take your dog. They're coming to send you to jail. They're coming to have you deported. And
0: so I think there's opportunities. So I, I think to, in summary, attempting rehabilitation and sort of more systematic approaches to, to make the world better instead of punitive initiatives to to sort of single out and and punish and make life worse for offenders or however we want we will label them yes
1: yeah i think that's right i think that's right exactly
0: so thank you so much we've taken up a lot of your time you've you've already touched on this so i'm not sure if you have too much to add but i usually wrap up by asking is there anything that you're working on now that you would be willing to share with us
1: yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I mean, um, I am doing a lot of research on, on the impacts of the focus of a sort of criminal justice solutions by the animal groups. I've also, the only thing I'll share, um, which I didn't have this data yet in the book, is that um, the other thing I'm looking to publish soon is is sort of just some statistics and findings about uh, inequalities and disparities in the animal system. So we talked about that earlier in this interview, that the American criminal system is plagued with racial disparities. And many have assumed a a dominant response to my book has been, well, but we don't, we certainly don't know that when it comes to animal crimes, it's as though, you know, animal crimes should be presumed to be racially, racially neutral. Um, And so I've been doing some research on that and I can just share a couple of things. Um, One of them is that persons who identify as black or Latino or Latino are about twice as likely to know someone who has been accused of animal abuse in their community as compared to others. So, you know, Again, um, that doesn't tell us everything, but it turns out that persons who are from marginalized communities are just much more likely to know someone who's been accused of animal abuse. I mean, that should give us some pause. Likewise, you know, the FBI began tracking animal crimes in 2016. Every single year that that data has been collected from 2016 on, White persons are underrepresented and persons who identify as black are overrepresented in both the charge and the arrest data. And that's
0: probably that I'm sure that closely mirrors the situation with drugs as well. Exactly right. That's that's exactly what I was going to
1: say is as a percentage of arrests, um, I think a lot of animal lawyers would be shocked to learn that animal cruelty crimes have a racially disparate arrest rate that is not so different than crimes like drug crimes, bad checks, for George Floyd, public drunkenness, right? These classic new Jim Crow crimes um, don't look radically different than the enforcement patterns we're seeing for animal crimes. Now, this is a hard thing to study because animal crimes data is, is much less complete. But the point here is it doesn't look Like the animal prosecution system is somehow radically more fair or just totally different, which I think many of us in animal law assume, right? There's been this longstanding presumption like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know the system is broke. Maybe I even wear a defund the police button but when it comes to animal crimes it's, it's everything is working fine and I think that, that that's one of the things that I'm going to be publishing as well as just sort of showing look you know our, our sort of willingness to give a pass to this area and assume that we're doing fine and implicit bias and the does not implicit bias and the rest is not infecting the system uh, is probably not a safe assumption.
0: Well, Justin, I, I really cannot speak more highly of your book. You brought up the new Jim Crow. I would say much as Michelle Alexander's uh, incredible book, The New Jim Crow, was a book with the power to transform one's view of an entire subject. I think yours is the same. As I said at the beginning, Beyond Cages is a book that I think everyone in the animal protection movement and anyone that cares about animals should read and engage deeply with. Thank you so much for writing this important book and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. I have to say, Mark, I don't, I don't know that I've had many
1: interviewers who have read the, the book more closely. Your questions were really excellent. So thank you for your time and
0: having me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Justin Marceau about his 2019 book, Beyond Cages, Animal Law and Criminal Punishment. It is a compassionate and empathetic book, and an important one. I hope you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Animal Studies channel on the New Books Network. See you next time.